0: Welcome to a special edition of the BioCentury This Week podcast. I'm Jeff Cranmer, executive editor of BioCentury. And today we are coming to you from various parts in the world, but it is the BioCentury Bay Helix East West Biopharma Summit. Some of us are here in Redwood City in the San Francisco Bay Area. And Other guests are in Hong Kong and Shanghai, where we're also hosting the event as well. We've had a lot of great panels already exploring the challenges and opportunities of cross-border collaboration and globalization to deliver biopharma innovation to patients while helping investors enjoy some of that ROI they're looking for. I have several special guests joining me today. Lisa Feng, CBO and CFO of JoKu Ophthalmology. She joins us from Hong Kong. Phoebe Yan, partner in the litigation department of Paul Hastings, joins us from Shanghai. And returning guest, Tony Chen, partner at Jones Day, who is in a secure location at the Redwood City mm-hmm. event. And of course, Josh Berlin, our head of BD here at BioCentury and one of the main organizers of the East-West Summit. So during some of the early sessions of the meeting today, we heard quite a bit about the challenges facing biotech companies seeking to globalize and work across borders. There's disconnects in the regulatory environments in China, the US, and Europe. There's challenges for recruiting and retaining top tier Cross-border management teams in, in today's hybrid environment. The CEO Marathi talked today about the fractured US healthcare system. But one point that came up again and again, came up in the scene setter panel, moderated by Biocentury editor-in-chief Simone Fishburn, as well as this CEO roundtable, uh, moderated by McKinsey, is that while there's lots of dry powder out there in the capital markets, it seems to be getting rationed out in drips and drabs. So I'd like to go to Lisa in Hong Kong. Lisa, from where you sit as CBO and CFO of a biotech, I'd love to get your perspective on that challenge.
1: Yeah, no, thank you very much, Jeff. First of all, thank you for having me. Certainly has been a night and day difference between now and when we did our IPO, which is the spring of 2021, when I remember that, you know, bankers couldn't even go to sleep just because there are so many deals coming out. But things have changed. As you said, dramatically, I, in fact, asked some of my banker friends to give me some statistics. And so far this year, there are only seven IPOs, healthcare IPOs in Hong Kong that were executed. And the average deal size has also come down dramatically to 90 million U.S. dollars. And to put that in the context, right? So I started in biotech about, you know, the beginning of 18A chapter in the summer of 2018. So the deal volume, healthcare deal volume since then every year went from 4 billion in 18 to five, 19 and 12 in 20 and 10 in 2021, and now less than a billion in 2022. So you're absolutely right. The funding environment has been very difficult. And if you look at it from perspective, of the investors, the return profile has also dramatically changed where, you know, despite a slow start that I remember in 2018, the early vintage delivered some huge returns. For example, Casino at the highest time was a 20-bagger. innovant I think, was a seven-bagger or close to seven-bagger anyway. And then you get to the vintage of 19, 20, 21. And again, unfortunately, ourselves included, a lot of the stocks are 70, 80, 90% down. I think that explains a lot why some of the investors may have dry powder but remain very much gone shy. And it does also mean that when investors look at the new opportunities, they are looking for safer cash flow. They are looking for sectors that are just generally less risk, perhaps closer to commercialization, perhaps closer to consumer. So I think in light of the overall funding contest, you know, certainly for people like ourselves as listed company, but I think just generally speaking for biotech and for the growth healthcare companies, two things we CFOs, I guess, all feel strongly about. One is cash conservation, because you know I, I think none of us can work off of a base case that we're going to come out and raise capital in the next six to 12 months. So I hear myself and many other fellow CFOs talking about a cash runway of two, three, even longer years. I think that is a very important thing that, that we all have to stick to. And then, you know, of course, related to that, what that does mean for business and putting on my CDO hat on is prioritization, you know, whereas when, again, when the cash was plenty full, certainly there are many things we all want to accomplish, but in light of the, you know, the cash runway that we all have to be very, very aware of, I think we all have to pick and choose and only focus on the most important thing. And probably those that will deliver commercial, the top and bottom line visibility sooner rather than later.
0: Yeah, Phoebe, I'm curious. You were at the opening reception in Shanghai, and I know you were chatting with some investors and some other peers in the industry. What was sort of the hallway chatter that you were hearing?
2: So, first of all, I commented yesterday that that was the like the first public function that I joined since April Shanghai's lockdown. So many of us are are still celebrating. Finally, you know, we have a chance to uh, bind in person and how important that interperson connection is in light of all the you know the market science and everything else. But one thing that I think we discussed with old and new friends is that I myself as a compliance and litigation lawyer. And a lot of the I think the audience of our seminars and presentations are you know, focused a lot on the investment and clinical progress and the commercialization process. But Based on our experience, actually, from an FCPA or general ABAC perspective, when companies are doing, whether it's kind of a self-examination or kind of an investment-based due diligence, people are still very focused on the HCP, third-party sort of risk that could be implicated together with commercialization or other process. For instance, we all know in China, if you have a clinical trial process, it's very important to be partner with distinguished ACPs and researchers. And later, you know, if a product is commercialized, there are various events, tangible benefits, whether directly given or through third party, to be given to the same audience. So there's always the question on how to draw the line, how to set up efficient compliance monitoring program to make sure all these stage are operated in a risk-controlled way. And in the COVID era in particular, we see we do see some patents that could you know, draw companies' attention and multinational companies in particular are investing more sources in that regard. The first observation is about virtual meetings, virtual events. This is just a given, right? In the COVID lockdown period, it's just impossible to have in-person meetings as the old way but companies still have this internal and external needs to hold various academic events. And the solution the current market practice is transition to virtual meetings. And the virtual meetings definitely have pros, but cons from the compliance control perspective would be, for instance, it would be more difficult to verify the identification of audience and attendees. Arguably, it's difficult to collect supporting documents and also to perform a spot check on set would also be more difficult. But again, some would also argue that virtual meetings provide an opportunity for the companies to use technical tools to verify the authenticity and reasonableness of such events, therefore enhanced compliance control of those meetings. So we've seen some debates and progress on that front for virtual meetings. Another observation is about uh, Non-tangible benefits like donations, sponsorship, grant that provided to the HCP audience, but usually through a third party. And I think in China there is this legislative background that we have this donation law published a number of years ago. And after that, everyone is being very careful. If it's a donation, it has to be for no benefit, no return. It has to be just in the nature of nonprofit. But on the other hand, I'm sure we all understand uh, business have various other projects that may not check the box, whether from a substance perspective or from appearance perspective, or even from a book and records perspective to look nonprofit. So again, it's a question. Again, it's about you know, how to justify event and review event and design a, a compliance program that could control the risk and allow the companies to do the donations, to give out the grants and make a sponsorship to subparties, in the same time can guarantee that the HCPs ultimately attended those events, have no compliance issues, whether from the marketing perspective or from the initial commercialization process. We've seen a lot of questions, frankly, asked in that way. I've even. Handle the investigations on those topics. But again, those are occurring issues. Those are probably issues that national companies and Chinese companies are going to face in the market for a while. It would be very interesting to also observe Chinese regulators' perspective on that, because there, as I mentioned, there is a potential tax angle or at least a book and records angle on those practices. So I I felt that that's an interesting topic to be observed in the near future.
0: Excellent. And then Phoebe chaired one of our digital sessions that you can find on the East-West Summit website. It was on cross-border compliance challenges, reducing risk for the C-suite. And uh, Tony, you just chaired a panel that just wrapped up on operating under China's version of the Hatch-Waxman Act. What are some of the challenges you are seeing for biotechs in China, whether they're Western or whether they're Chinese, Asian, in terms of your area of expertise?
3: Well, first of all, thank you, Jeff, for the invitation to uh, rejoin uh, your podcast. And the focus of The panel, I was the moderator, uh, actually, well connected to the topic Lisa brought up about the recent downturn in the life science equity market, uh, whether that be in Hong Kong or in Shanghai or NASDAQ listed companies uh, with uh, China business focus. And a big part of that is everybody here, the dreaded word. VBP, volume-based procurement, which uh, significantly drive down the price of uh, innovative medicine, you know, price cut of over 90% in some cases. And this has to do with the lack of exclusivity, including patent protection for innovative medicine. And simply put, Today's uh, VBP rule is that when a innovative medicine loses exclusivity protection and you have three or more generic competing of the same category, then the government could put this drug on the VBP bidding, uh, which means that if you manage to have patent protection, then you will not have this. Uh, additional three generic, and you will not face this stiff patent cliff. Now, since July of 2021, China started a U.S. Hatch-Waxman-style patent linkage system called the Early Resolution of a Pharmaceutical Patent Dispute, and it allows innovators to list their Chinese book in a China's a CDE-run system that is uh, similar to the US Orange Book. And then when a generic drug company bring their ANDA to compete and a file for NMPA approval, the innovator can use their Chinese patent to stop the approval of a generic prior to patent expiration and there are dozens of such disputes already happened since July of 2021 so this highlights the importance of a chinese patent for pharmaceutical company operating in china today and uh, you know, our panel tony uh, you know one yes. question
4: just to, if I, I didn't mean to interrupt but you know this was something i think that came up in your in your panel as well but you know when when folks in, in the west were listening to you and, and to others, they, they hear a lot of familiar terms. You know, they hear hatch waxman, they hear patent linkage, they hear China's Orange Book. And everybody, I think, in the industry, when you say hatch waxman, they know what you mean. They when you say patent linkage, you think you know what they mean. But in China it's it's been developing a little bit differently than maybe some were expecting. You know, maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, you know, when we say patent linkage, when we say Hatch-Waxman and so forth, it's not necessarily the same as what we are used to in the, in the U.S.
3: Indeed, Josh, you brought up a very good observation. For example, in the China's uh, system, the Chinese uh, Patent Office, you know, CNIPA, play a much bigger role. Than the US Patent Trademark Office in the US system. In the US, when you have this kind of uh, innovator generic dispute, you go to federal court. But in China, an administrative adjudication system set up by CNA IPA has emerged to take the more dominant role in resolving this kind of a dispute. And uh, so, drawing the attention of both innovator and the generic to run to CNIPA and the Beijing IP court, which has a parallel jurisdiction, is not getting nearly as much attention by the players in the market.
4: Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And, and Lisa, I wanted to follow up with one part you mentioned. You know, Here at the um, event this week, we've heard a lot about two of the things you mentioned. Cash conservation and prioritization, and you talked I thought very well about what the IPO and financing markets looking like. But maybe you can also talk about it from um, you know what you're seeing on on the deal side. You know, is this something where um, you know companies, China biotechs, perhaps are looking now to to increase deal flow and what you're seeing in that space? Just to
1: clarify, Josh, you asked asking about in licensing,
4: our licensing, M Yeah, I think is- I, I think I think both, in particular on on the licensing side. You know, traditionally, it's been very much China biotech's in-licensing Western innovation from Western companies. And and certainly in the last couple of years, we've seen a flow the other way. And and maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
1: No, sure. I mean, obviously, I think there are fewer official statistics as such when it comes to in-licensing, out-licensing deal flow. But my personal view, just based on our own, again, prioritization and just chatting with the peers, I think. Whereas, as you said, Josh, that the Chinese, a lot of the biotechs were very active in the in licensing markets, looking to bring the global assets to China in the last few years. I think with the capital drying up and everybody trying to prioritize their existing assets in-house, I have to believe that the overall deal volume in terms of Chinese kind of bidding in licensing stage in the world has come down quite significantly. And I think, again, my guess is it will be particularly the smaller companies that will be far less aggressive. I know guys like Xilab are probably still out there, you know, making the licensing deals, but less so on the smaller end. And I think that you brought up another point, which is certainly a lot of the investors focus in terms of what they want to see, what the biotech companies in China do. Besides commercializing and getting to revenue stage earlier in China, another part that that's on their wish list is the globalization, right, of the Chinese companies. And this is partly a function of what Tony mentioned, the, the pricing environment in China. And so people feel that if you really have a first-in-class or best-in-class asset, the commercial opportunity outside of China is not to be ignored. And so you will see, and you have, we have started seeing a couple of years ago, but my guess is with more and more Chinese companies coming up the ladder in terms of innovation, we'll see more and more kind of out-licensing of the Chinese programs overseas as well. And then finally, in terms of deals, again, I, I don't know how many have would have been announced, but I, I certainly feel that more and more people are looking for partnerships in the commercial realm as well. Whereas, you know, Josh that back in the days, you know, the Chinese biotech likes to do everything in-house. But I think partly as the, you know, again, prioritization of cash, probably also as a function of the evolving commercial landscape that you definitely see more and more companies, biotechs in particular, looking to partner up with the more mature pharmaceutical companies.
3: Yeah, thank well, you for that. Yeah, uh, what Lisa brought up about out licensing actually was recognized uh, during today's session mm-hmm. uh, in Redwood City when we gave awards, Bay Helix Award. One of that is for commercial achievement of the year. It was given to Legend Biotech because the CAR-T product that uh, they co-developed with uh, Jensen but was invented by uh, Legend of Biotech in China, was approved by USFDA, by Japan, and the condition approved uh, by Europe, and has since uh, been launched. And yet uh, this product has not been approved and launched in China yet. So this is a good example, innovation coming from China, but the US patient, is getting the benefit of this innovation first.
4: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Phoebe, I, I thought your point, I actually had never thought about it before, but the added compliance risk to the digital world we're all living in. You know, this is BioCentury's first uh, in-person event in the U.S. in three years. And so we're all sort of celebrating it and very much well, we're happy we could add the, uh, the Shanghai reception this year as well. And thank you for your support of that event. But maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. You know, everybody is really in a, in a Zoom world now. And, um, you know, there are other things that folks need to think about as they're doing more and more, you know, Zoom one-to-one meetings. They're doing more and more digital meetings. You know, how, how does that change the, the sort of assessment of um, compliance risk for biopharma executives?
2: Thank you so much, Josh. I, I feel like in our presentation, we talk about the latest DOJ memo. One of the incentives that DOJ would consider is how company allocated proper resources to monitor instant messages and APPs such as WeChat, because they now or days played a very important role, critical, role, I would say in, in business transactions in not only in China, sometimes in cross border transactions. And we all know that there is a privacy angle against closed monitorship. but again, from a compliance perspective, at least right now, from an international compliance perspective, in particular, uh, the good practice is still to exert some ownership instead of just let it go. And some of the compliance issues that I mentioned, like external funding, the smoking gun, because if you just provide external funding to a third party, as long as you have a due diligence process of those third-party organizations, the one not usually on record, you don't have a smoking gun. But usually the smoking gun is fine in instant messages or WeChat messages when you have one of your employees talking with JCP to say, oh, we're going to give you this meeting opportunity, give you this speaking opportunity, and instead you should do this and do that. So that always, you know, the smoking gun and that never occurred on server emails. It's most often occurred on all those APPs. So that's the challenges that we're facing now. That's the reality we're dealing now. And I think the USDOJ in particular, I think Chinese authorities probably gonna roll out some cases on that too. But at least right now, the USDOJ has made it very clear that they expect companies to allocate resources, compliance resources on that front. So that's something companies should not wait anymore. Does not have to be a full scrutiny because again, there's a privacy angle because WeChat unlike the others and some other APPs, they have you know a privacy and social function. But again, now, I think that at least in the China market, the established practice is to exert some monieship over that.
0: Excellent. Oh, Lisa. Jumped,
1: Oh, sorry. I was just going to jump in and say what Phoebe said really resonates with me because just to add another exciting layer of complication to that problem, because you know, as you know, a lot of biotech companies uh, used to follow what I call to be business model, right? You mostly talk to the hospitals and the doctors, but now for a lot of Subsectors, certainly ophthalmology included, we feel that the right commercial model exact detail TBD, but it's going towards 2B2C. So you want to talk to the hospitals and physicians, but increasingly you want to reach out to the patient and in some cases consumer as well. So that amplifies, multiplies the complication of Phoebe's problem, which is how to monitor and how to use the right language and to say the right thing, the compliant way to the doctors, to the hospitals, to the physicians, to the patients, and, you know, it's it's getting very complicated.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I totally agree on that.
0: We will surely have it all sorted out by uh, next year's East-West Summit, (laughs) Uh, I am sure. Well, Lisa, Tony, Phoebe, and of course, Josh, thanks so much for joining us to discuss these challenges and opportunities in the cross-border biopharma environment. We'll have a a part two of uh, The East-West Summit podcast, Uh, Tony mentioned the Bay Helix Awards. We'll have a Bay Helix Award winner joining us, uh, the CEO of Immune Onc Therapeutics, which won the R&D Achievement of the Year Award, Charlene Liao. Some other winners today, the Deal of the Year went to Turning Point Therapeutics uh, for its takeout by Bristol-Myers Squibb company of the year in silico medicine and woman leader of the year, Joan Shen, founder and CEO of Nushen Therapeutics. Also joining us will be Hank Juice of Agio Capital. So thanks for tuning in and tune in to our next program as well. Thanks everyone. Thank Thank you all. Thank you so much. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Our friends at Kendall Square Orchestra provide the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.